everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger. You know, in my basement, in my home gym, I have this, this mural painted. And it's a picture of Bruce Lee doing some badass Bruce Lee stuff. And next to it, there's a, a quote from Bruce Lee that says, as you think, so shall you become. And it's not just some like motivational rah-rah, you know, workout, get ripped, be huge kind of thing. It's really, to me, a daily reminder to keep myself from allowing all those negative thoughts to seep in. I have a very busy brain, like a lot of you, and sometimes the thoughts that run through there aren't the most positive thoughts in the world. But what Bruce is telling us, and what my guest this week is going to tell you, is that those thoughts are really important because the degree to which we expect good things from the world is a strong predictor of how good our life is going to be. My guest this week is David Robson. He's an award-winning science writer specializing in the extremes of the human brain, body, and behavior. And he's got a new book out called The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. And not just your world, but the world of those around you, because we affect other people by the way we think. And as we'll discuss, our expectations of other people influence their life as well. In addition to that, we'll talk about the difference between positive expectations and the law of attraction. Yes, this is real science, folks. We talk about how our expectations can improve our health, boost our intelligence, and make the aging process better. We discuss why routine or process can help get us out of our heads before an important event. We discuss why worrying about worrying, meta-worrying, yes, uh, why worrying about worrying might be the most dangerous thing we can do, and most importantly, how we can break ourselves out of those bad habits when we find ourselves slipping into them. Because what? What do we learn so far today? Because our expectations can change our worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, this is David Robson. David Robson, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. David, you're an author of the book called The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. What are your expectations for today's interview and how might they affect its outcome? Mm, you know, my expectations are that you're going to ask some brilliant questions. We're going to have a productive discussion. <laughs> and it is um, already manifest. You know, <laughs> Here we are. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that is the power of the expectation effect. I mean, even in this kind of situation, actually, the fact that I'm coming into it with this kind of um, hopeful expectation that it's going to be a good conversation, you know, that will change our interaction. Now, if you came in with a negative attitude, where might that take us instead of uh, the brilliant beginning we've already had? You know, I could just imagine that like I would be focusing on, you know, some like some negative cues that I might be perceiving, even if they're not there. You know, the um, studies all showed that actually if we go into social interactions with kind of negative expectations, we can kind of pick up on, you know, nonverbal cues and misinterpret them. And then that just kind of spirals and escalates, which would change my behavior and then change the way you responded. So, you know, these are, it's kind of an iterative process in that case, but, um, but it could be powerful. Um, but luckily that's not happening. So before we jump too much further on, let's talk about what the expectation effect is. Right. So, I mean, that's one example of an expectation effect, but actually it's a much broader phenomenon. And I just uh, define it as being this um, phenomenon where our beliefs create these self-fulfilling prophecies, and it can happen through three main mechanisms, which is um, changes to our perception, changes to our behavior, and then a final one, changes to our physiology. 
And actually, all three of those are equally important and also interacting. So a change to your behavior can change your uh, physiology, but vice versa. You know, if you have a different hormonal balance, that's going to affect the way that you respond to different situations. All right. Can you distinguish between the expectation effect and the law of attraction? I just want to be clear about what we're talking here. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in my opinion, um, they're very different, although they might seem to have the same um, kind of basis or outcome. But I mean, you know, I don't want to trash like um, kind of books on manifesting, but in my opinion, like the law of attraction is, you know, basically pseudoscience. It's kind of drawing on these, you know, principles of quantum mechanics and then misapplying them in ways that to me don't make a, you know, logical sound robust like um argument. But, um, you know, but the, the, the idea there is that if you kind of uh, project positive energy into the world, I think then positive things come your way. Um, the expectation effect is much more kind of grounded in, you know, everyday kind of physiology, psychology. Um, so it's really looking only at mechanisms that we really understand and that have been studied ex- um, extensively in science. Um, you know, I'm not claiming that we can uh, you know, that the expectations can create miracles, that it can instantly make you rich, unlike some of the books on manifesting. But what I'm really <laughs> trying to say is that actually, nevertheless, you don't have to have miracles for it to be really profound in changing your health, your happiness, your productivity, you know, these things that really matter to our lives. And actually, you know, a lot of the time we're kind of trying to change our lifestyles, you know, changing our diet, trying mm-hmm. to do workouts, trying to deal with stress. Um And, you know, those practical measures that we're taking are really important. But actually, when we change our expectations around what we're doing, then that can actually boost the benefits that we're getting from all of that positive behavior. So I like to see the expectation effect as almost like taking the brakes off of your progress that you might have been putting on on your progress with negative expectations, just, you know, taking those brakes off and kind of making sure that you get the full advantage of all of the good things that you're doing in your life. You, you cited a study where workers in a hospital actually derived uh, physical fitness benefits from doing the manual labor that they do on an everyday basis just by recognizing that what they do burns calories. And I'm paraphrasing, so please uh, put it more accurately. But, but is that, do I have the broad strokes correct in that, in that uh, yeah. assumption? Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, one of my favorite examples of an expectation effect was that these, uh, they were hotel cleaners, you know, yeah, seven sorry. universities. Um, they were st- um, it was a study at Harvard University. And what they, uh, the researchers did was they went into, you know, three of these hotels, and they just educated the cleaners about the physical demands of their work. Because actually, you know, vacuuming, cleaning bed, you know, changing bedding, moving furniture, cleaning like the bathroom, all of that does actually burn a lot of calories. And over the week, you know, they're really getting the recommended amount of physical activity. Like, you know, that's not, that's just, you know, based on kind of actual measurements of the exercise that they're doing while they're working. And there's no deception there at all. Um, so the the researchers gave the hotel cleaners this, you know, presentation, they left some leaflets, they put up posters, you know, just to remind them of these facts. And then a month later, they went back and recorded all kinds of um, measures of their fitness, you know, things like their uh, blood pressure, um, their uh, body mass index, uh, you know, measure of obesity. And what they found was that actually, um, on those two measures, actually, they the cleaners saw some uh, substantial improvements. So, they kind of moved with their blood pressure from being on the threshold of hypertension to below that threshold. You know, they had like healthy blood pressure. Um, you know, they lost a little bit of weight, a couple of pounds. You know, 
Um, now, it's possible that this could have been through a change to their behaviour. And frankly, I think that would be powerful enough um, because actually it's really difficult to encourage people to do more exercise. So if this positive information was actually causing them to kind of do more exercise in their life, well, that would be a useful result. But they really questioned them carefully about that possibility. And it didn't seem to be that they had changed their lifestyles in any other way. So it seems that this was more direct physiological response of their expectations, akin to the placebo effect that's so famous in medicine. It seems that they were actually just through changing their outlook and helping them to reappraise their exercise, that that in itself was doing things like lowering their blood pressure and helping them to to be healthier. But doesn't, and that was the first time I'm like, wait a minute, come on now, isn't weight loss just calories in versus calories burned? Isn't that what, what did, did, were they actually burning more calories because they were putting more effort into their work or what? Like, how do you justify that? Yeah, so the blood pressure result, I think, you know, makes complete sense with this kind of mind-body connection, because mm-hmm. we know, you know, you can give people a, a tablet that and tell them that it's, you know, going to lower their blood pressure, and often it does, even if it's a dummy pill. So, you know, that makes sense. Um, with the weight loss, you know, I think the researchers are still, still trying to explore the mechanism there. But we do know that our perceptions about, you know, the foods we eat and the exercise we do can actually change things like our the speed of our metabolism. Mm. So there's another study that had shown that, you know, if you're eating exactly the same kind of food, but you believe if you believe it's high calories or low calories, that actually changes the levels of the hormone ghrelin, which um, affects hunger, but also affects metabolism. Mm. So, you know, it's perfectly possible there is some other mechanism there. Um, We also know, you know, things like stress. If you're feeling really stressed, actually, that can um, throw your metabolism. Um, So it's possible that actually this small change in weight was just because you know, they if they're feeling more positive about their work, they were feeling less stressed potentially, and that could then change their metabolism. There's a lot of very interesting information about the relationship between anxiety and and stress and uh, food and all that. And I want to come back to it later in the in the conversation. Let's talk about the placebo effect uh, because there's a few basic tenets that support all of this, right? And the first one is the placebo effect. So is it is it the caffeine in my morning coffee, or is the is it the expectation of the caffeine in my morning coffee that wakes me up every? So, um, you know, caffeine, I think, definitely does have a physiological effect mm-hmm. that then and a psychological effect. But I do think the expectation plays a really important role. And we know this because um, scientists gave people, um, you know, just pure water, like just pure H2O, but they told them that it <laughs> um, had caffeine in it and that it was an energy drink. And that did indeed seem to change their alertness, you know, this um, how awake they felt. Um, I think um, it even did, you know, change their blood pressure to it, kind mm. of raised their blood pressure, kind of getting them pumped up, you know, that was purely through expectation. Um, we also know, you know, in um, the context of the gym, um, Caffeine is sometimes used as a supplement, you know, to help you kind of um, have that burst of energy. Um, But actually, when people were taking decaf coffee, uh, but they were told that it was um, caffeinated, they had exactly the same boost in their strength. So, uh, you know, expectations, even in that context, can be really powerful. Can you give me some other examples that you cite in the book about the placebo effect and how counterintuitively powerful it is to the point where people will actually believe they're on narcotics if they're told they are? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so there's lots of studies showing that actually, um, when we take these um, placebos, that often it can 
trigger the kind of desired physiological reaction. And that's especially true if you've already had previous experience with the drug. So someone on a Parkinson's drug who has been taking um, a pill to kind of increase their dopamine, if they then take a placebo pill, believing that it's, um, you know, this drug, that actually triggers the release of the dopamine. And the same thing happens with painkillers. Um, you know, you give someone a placebo painkiller and you tell them it's an opioid uh, painkiller, then the brain starts to produce its own endogenous They're like, opioids. yeah, um, here comes yeah, the goodies. Exactly. Candy's coming. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I find that kind of counterintuitive. But I think what's happening there is, you know, the expectation of having that rushing through the body can itself then kind of, it's kind of preempting that and almost helping it along, you know, like mm-hmm. um, it's... Uh, it's kind of the most efficient way of responding to the chemical changes that are going to happen in the the body if it's kind of easing the way for those drugs to take an effect. Um, so that can be really powerful. It seems from some studies that you know placebo effects can account for maybe fifty percent of the um, pain relief that you get from morphine in the mm. hospital, and we know that because you can compare people who are receiving morphine through an intravenous drip compared to those who are being delivered the drug by their doctor, who's kind of telling them, you know, you're going to receive pain relief. And and in, you know, these studies, it seemed that they needed about half the dose when the doctor was there reassuring them to, re- the sa- to um, receive the same level of pain relief. So it's very powerful, even when we're having normal kind of standard um, treatments in hospitals. Do you see the placebo effect degrading over time? I mean, it seems like you can fool me once, but can you fool me, you know, consistently with the placebo? Hmm. It's not about me. Um, Can we? It's not about me. It's about humans, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So that does happen, um, actually. But you know, there are ways to kind of uh, overcome that. So, for example, um, there's a lot of excitement now about um, open label placebos, and that's actually you just tell people you're going to receive a, a placebo painkiller. It's uh, you know labeled as a placebo on the on the jar. You know, uh, there's nothing deceptive about this. Um, but what they do is they still give the presentation, um, you know, about the expectation effect of these patients. So they're telling them, well, you're receiving an, you know, inert pill, but you're still going to maybe release these opioids, you're still going to feel great. Um, and in previous studies that had been shown to actually bring about some pain relief, but you can maximize that by um, using a process called conditioning. So what you might do is give the placebo pill along with the real drug and maybe associate it with like a certain strong smell, like the um, smell of cardamom, I think it was in the mm-hmm. in the study. So, you know, um, you do that. So the brain forms this strong association between the new placebo pill and the cardamom um, smell. And then you tell, ask the person, well, now try to just take the, the placebo and not the real drug. Um you know, see how that goes. And what you find is that you, and, the, you know, they take that pill, they have this uh, scent cue as well, um, and that conditioning actually boosts the placebo effect. And what you find is that then you can go for a few days, you know, maybe the effects are declining slightly, you can then give it a boost. So, you know, for one day out of every five, for example, you might say, well, now take the real drugs to kind of form that association again. Mm-hmm. And the hope is that what that would do is you help people to wean themselves off of these addictive drugs that way. So they're lowering their dose, continually lowering their dose and becoming more reliant on the placebo pill until eventually, you know, they feel empowered enough just by this knowledge of the mind-body connection that perhaps they don't need to take the drug at all, that they can go completely cold turkey. You write that the brain evolved to make predictions. How does that influence the expectation effect? 
So, I mean, I think the expectation effect arises from this predictive processing in the brain, which is probably very ancient. Like, I certainly believe that, you know, lots of other animals, I would have thought almost all mammals, maybe birds as well, use a form of predictive processing. And essentially, what's happening is that the brain is always using these cues from its environment, you know, memories from past experiences to then predict you know, what's going to happen, what's happening in the here and now, and what's going to happen in the future. Um, And the reason that's really powerful um, and the reason it evolved is because often the sensory data we're receiving is quite poor. So actually, we use these kind of simulations the brain is building to, to shape the way we process that data, to fill in those kinds of gaps that we might not be receiving because, you know, it's a foggy day and you can't make out all mm. of the landmarks in the scenery. Um, you know, it's really using all of these predictions to actually to shape the perception. Um, so that's, you know, useful for any kind of creature, actually, that's trying to navigate the world. And then from those simulations, it can also help to prepare the body for, you know, the challenges that it's going to face. So that's when it will start to have the physiological effects on the body, you know, changing hormones, changing blood pressure, changing the actions of the heart itself. Um, So that was crucial for survival. But then humans have all of these other kind of ways of forming expectations. You know, we have symbols, we have culture, we have language. um, And all of those then kind of feed into the brain's prediction machine and shaping those simulations that we're making. And that's why something like a, you know, dummy pill can actually be powerful because it's got all these associations, you know, with previous drugs we've taken, with the sense of being cared for, with the kind of ritual of being in a hospital. Mm. All of those, you know, are kind of wrapped up in this small kind of uh, pill that's that's very symbolic to us, and then that's shaping, you know, our the kind of brain's predictions, and ultimately then how it chooses to respond to the the kind of illness that we're facing or the stressful situation that we're facing. So, but you but you make the argument that that uh, the expectation effect can even change our intelligence. How does I mean? I can see how if I'm anticipating something, I'm going to go on a trip. I'm going to have dinner with my wife. There's a bottle of wine that we're going to open. I can see how it's going to change mm. my physiology. How does it change my intelligence? The wine will change my intelligence also very rapidly. But how does the expectation effect change my intelligence? Right. I mean, so there was you know a good study um, that had looked at kind of cognitive training. You know, there were all those apps. Maybe they're less popular now, but mm. I think in the 2000s, you know, they promised to kind of make you smarter yeah, by doing these yeah. little games. Um, you know, um, and there were some good studies that seemed to show that that could actually, you know, bring about IQ gains. But um, what this uh, these researchers realised was that actually when they were recruiting these participants, they often used these adverts that were like, boost your intelligence, come to our lab, try these tests. And then that was creating the expectation that they were going to become smarter by doing this training. Um, So the researchers actually just tried to test that hypothesis by, you know, just simply by with one kind of neutral advert recruiting some participants and some kind of setting up that expectation. And what they found was that in that case, the cognitive training was far more powerful. It actually raised um, their IQ by about five points, I believe, um, when they had that kind of raised expectations. So that's where this kind of assumption that expectation effects can change your intelligence comes from. It comes from all of that research. Um, But actually, there's lots of, you know, very plausible psychological mechanisms by which that could happen. I mean, one is just that if you, 
you think you're kind of going to be smarter. Maybe you're going to be more engaged with the tests. You're going to kind of try a bit harder. Another is that you you might typically feel quite anxious when you face those kinds of difficult nonverbal problems because you you've assumed that you just can't manage to to do them. And that anxiety actually takes up quite a lot of mental energy. Um, neuroscientists often talk about a kind of having a mental workspace where you're kind of you know, um, uh, where you're kind of organising your thoughts. And, you know, if that anxiety, that kind of rumination is taking up some of your your um, kind of thoughts, then you're going to have fewer resources to actually be able to devote to the problem. If you have the expectation that because of this training, you know, you're, you're going to be smarter, you're going to reduce that kind of, that anxiety, that rumination, you're going to clear your workspace. So you're more um, devoting more resources to the task. Um, so those are just two ways in which it might affect intelligence. But actually, you know, there's a bunch of research showing that, um, you know, this does happen in lots of different situations. So not just with cognitive training, but in intelligence, you know, if a teacher can make a child believe that they um, are kind of capable of doing the the tasks in the lesson, well, that can actually make the child be more capable. So it can be really powerful in education and in the workplace. Well, that brings up the topic of our expectations of others. So there's mm-hmm. certain expectations we have of ourselves, but how do, how do our expectations of others turn into um, self-fulfilling prophecies? Right. I mean, so you might just think it would be like... Um, you know, straight kind of verbal cues. And I'm sure they are important. You know, you might just like tell someone you think they're dumb and then, you know, they would go off and <laughs> all the, they do it all the time. Do it all the time. <laughs> right. Exactly. Or you might be like super encouraging to, to a kid um, and be like, oh, you're a genius. You're going to ace this. Um, you know, I'm sure sometimes that works. But actually, what seems to be more powerful is the kind of non verbal cues that we're giving to the kids. And I think, you know, often they can contradict what we're saying. So, you know, you might tell another person that you have every faith in in their abilities, but, you know, you might be almost like grimacing as you say that. And that grimace kind of tells the child or the employee all they need to know about what you really think of them. <laughs> or, right. or you might, you know, like it feels patronizing. No one wants to be patronized and it actually increases your anxiety. Um, you know, it could just be something like if you, um, if you're talking to a like, a kid in the classroom or an employee mm-hmm. um, at work, and you um, you kind of you ask them a question, but then you cut them off as soon as they're giving the wrong answer, um, and don't let them fully like ex- follow through on that train of thought. Well, that's also giving this kind of um, implicit signal that you don't really think they're worth listening to, mm. um, and then you know that person is going to go away, and they're gonna they're just going to think, well, maybe. It's not even worth me kind of trying in the future because, you know, it's it's very clear that like they don't think I'm I'm going to be good enough, and and that reduces their kind of self-efficacy, their sense that they can actually get on with the task, and that's going to reduce their perseverance. It's going to increase their anxiety, which can cloud their thinking. You know, it's it's doing all these things that is ultimately then going to shape their performance. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you were talking about cognitive issues uh, just a minute ago. Can you break down the connection between expectations and aging, please? Yeah, I mean, so that's a big one. And it, it was one of these um, expectation effects. It was the last chapter of my book. And I kind of was the most skeptical of it because <laughs> it, it felt a bit too close to the idea of, you know, the law of attraction. It sounded a bit woo-woo, the fact that you can kind of decelerate your aging just with like a positive mindset. But um, but actually, the research is really robust. And again, the mechanisms, I think, are well, uh, uh, the mechanisms are very well studied and very, 
you know, very plausible and actually, you know, kind of um, fit in with a lot of other research on aging. Um, but essentially, the idea is that you, when you, you think of aging, you might just focus on all of the kind of disability that you're, you know, that often comes with age. So you'd be looking at the the kind of cognitive decline, um, kind of fra- frailty as you, with your movements, um, the risk of falling, the increased risk of Alzheimer's, all of these diseases. Um, or you could look at aging as actually having some, you know, positive kind of um, attributes as well. You know, not, without discounting that there are challenges, you can. It's very um, possible to look at aging as this time of potential growth. You know, once you're retired, like lots of people do, finally pursue passions that they might have had all their life but have never been able to devote themselves to. There's actually robust research showing that you know, certain um, elements of, of our cognitive abilities improve as we get older. So things like your general knowledge, your vocabulary, your decision-making, so where, how easy you find it to um, find compromises in situations, to balance different viewpoints, to, you know, really, like, come up with the wisest um, way out of a problem. You know, all of that actually peaks in old age, you know, mm. after retirement. So there are, you know, things to look forward to as you get older. And what the research shows is that if you focus on all of that, um, you know, that can actually increase your lifespan, it seems, by one longitudinal study that questioned people, you know, in midlife and then followed their health for the next few decades, found that people who had a more positive view of aging lived for seven and a half years longer than people who had a negative view. Mm. Um, Now, it's you know, we can only trust the longitudinal studies so far, but actually then when the scientists looked at the, because it's only a correlation, but when the scientists looked at the kind of mechanisms, like it all fell into place. And and one is behaviour. You know, mm. you're optimistic about ageing, you're more likely to look after your health, you're more likely mm. to be active, you know, that's really important for your health. Um, but also, it's kind of, there's this direct physiological route too. Um, and that, basically, the logic there is that if you feel really vulnerable. Say as you reach 60, you you start to think, well, like, I'm going to be experiencing kind of increased risk of like falls and disability. And, you know, when I go to the shops, I'm going to kind of lose my way. I'm going to forget where I am. I'm going to forget people's names. All of that kind of raises your your stress. And, you know, stress isn't necessarily damaging, as I explain in like another part of the book. But actually, day by day, if you're just constantly feeling stressed and like you can't cope with the challenges that life's facing you, that chronic stress does have an influence on your health. It can do things like raise levels of inflammation in the body. Um, And the studies show exactly that. When people have this negative view of aging, their cortisol, the stress hormone levels of that rise, so does the inflammation. That causes bodily wear and tear. And then that is predisposing you to all kinds of illnesses, including cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, I feel like they've really joined the dots there. And actually, that's a very plausible way that your beliefs, incrementally, but over months and then years, can have a real impact on your longevity. Yeah. Well, having spent a lot of lot of time in with older folks during the last few years of my parents' life, last decade of my parents' life, that, that it really resonated with me. You kind of look at people and go, that person wants to stay alive. You can see it in their eyes. This other person is they've kind of given up already. Yeah. I mean, that's I think that's, you know, that's might be my experience too. And actually looking at like relatives, I think sometimes it can really hit people all of a sudden. And that's what the research shows is that you you might carry 
negative attitudes about old people, you know, throughout your life, even from childhood, but you might not apply them to yourself personally until you reach this kind of milestone age. You know, it could be, you know, the day that you retire, or it could be a big birthday, like your 60th or your 70th. And then suddenly you start to think of yourself as being an old person. And if all your life you've been assuming that like old age, you know, comes with all of these uh, disadvantages, you know, suddenly that's when like you start to get really stressed about, you know, the challenges that you're facing. And then it's from that point onwards that really like you're going to start seeing on the the kind of slow but perpetual decline that's coming not from the inevitability of aging as much as from just your beliefs that it's going to happen. Okay, so I got to make a confession. For the first half of your book, the whole as you're citing lots and lots of anecdotes and evidence and all this kind of stuff, I'm like at a certain point I found myself thinking, okay, so what? So what do I do with this? You you've made the case, you've convinced me. And when you started talking about anxiety and stress, sort of like meta thinking, I was like, oh, this is the point of the book. Tell me a little bit about that. Mm, yeah, I'm glad you felt that because it's actually, you know, the stuff on stress mindsets that's really changed, you know, my life kind of uh, just day to day coping with kind of work pressure. Um, but essentially there, this there's, you know, in our culture, I think we've more and more over the last hundred years developed this kind of idea that stress is inherently dangerous and that even small amounts of stress um, are, you know, going to hurt you. Um, and that, you know, and that there's no other way of looking at it. And what this research shows is that, well, actually, there is another way of looking at certain kinds of stress, um, and that you can reframe that, and that reframing the the effects of stress can actually be really powerful in then changing its outcomes. Um, so, for example, uh, if I'm giving a talk, you know, I'm going to feel anxious, like speaking to hundreds or thousands of people, you know, like I, I feel like that's a very natural <laughs> Um, way for a human to respond, like in evolution, if you're faced with like a huge crowd, you know, it could be quite dangerous. <laughs> They're going to eat me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and personally as well, like you want to give your best performance, you know, you're going to be judged and you don't want to be embarrassed. Um, but I've, so that is fine. Like it's, you know, you can accept that you are going to feel stressful and you don't have to fight that. But you can actually change how you kind of read the feelings of stress. So in the past, you know, when I was getting that kind of um, racing heart and, you know, sweaty palms, butterflies in my stomach, I would kind of think like, oh, no, like, this is a sign that I'm going to fail. Because that's what I'd been told all my life, basically, was that stress was bad. It led you to fail. You should be kind of calm and relaxed. Um, But actually, like, scientifically, that doesn't really make sense. Because we know that this stress response evolved really to help us to, you know, help us meet challenges. And so things like the um, the racing heart, well, that's pumping a lot of oxygenated blood to the brain, which is helping you to kind of think more clearly. Um, cortisol, that hormone, when it kind of peaks um, uh, acutely, not kind of if it's a high kind of in the long term, but if it's kind of, you know, in the moment when you have a peak of cortisol, well, that's also keeping you kind of alert and energized. It means you're kind of really focusing on what the people in front of you are doing rather than being a bit drowsy, not reading the room, you know. Um, Mm. And what the research shows is that actually just explaining these potential benefits of feeling a little bit anxious, well, that actually then changes the effects of the anxiety. So if you think that the anxiety can be energizing, it actually becomes energizing. It actually improves people's performance. You know, not just in public speaking, but on 
um, difficult exams, even on the sports field, you know, mm. if you know that stress has benefits, well, then it brings these benefits. Um, that in itself is like super profound, I think. But I think what's even more important is this: then changing your physiology. Um, so when you you realise that stress can be beneficial, um, what you also see is a peak in um, not just cortisol, but these other kind of beneficial hormones, um, anabolic hormones that you know help to kind of maintain and build um, cells and tissue in your body. And so that's you know it's this balance of cortisol and the anabolic hormones that are kind of at the just the right level to kind of help you to reach peak performance and to reduce some of the um, negative effects that cortisol on its own could cause to the body. Um, even more importantly, you kind of just like you find it easier to relax afterwards. So your cardiovascular system just re- returns to normal much more quickly. So you're not feeling kind of wired, you know, hours after the event. You're kind of allowing the body to get back to kind of resting, digesting, you know, you sleep better. And it's all of that together then that means that, you know, even if you are facing kind of daily stressors, that it means the the effects of the stress don't accumulate and and they don't build up into that dangerous chronic long-term stress, but that actually you can go, you know, years under pressure without really seeing any kind of actual damage to your body caused by this regular stress that is actually, you're just processing it in a much more healthy way. Okay. So the flip side of that, maybe this is me projecting my, my uh, Catholic youth, guilt-ridden Catholic youth, is that if you judge yourself for being depressed or if you worry about how much you worry, you're f- yeah, I mean, I wouldn't. So, <laughs> to I put mean, it simply, <laughs> right? Um, I think that's a really big issue, actually, and that's why this can be so powerful. Is because it's like you can, like you said, it's almost like a meta kind of mindset. So you can feel anxious, and that you know could be beneficial. It could be. It could be negative. It depends on the kind of meta mindset. If you, if you can you're, frame yeah. it or step outside yourself through meditation yeah. or however, and yeah. you see it and you go, I'm I'm anxious, but that's okay. Because yeah. the, but if you look at it and go, I'm worried about being worried and I'm a bad person because I'm worried, or I'm a weak person because I'm depressed, that does that is not helpful. Judging yourself is not helpful. That's exactly it. Like what's damaging is more like the worry about being worried. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the shame that you might feel because you don't feel that you're kind of living up to this kind of um, idea of the kind of confident person that you want to be. You know, mm-hmm. it's that kind of worry that's more damaging than just feeling a, a little bit of anxiety. And like you said, with, you know, it ha- this actually applies to all kinds of negative emotions. The research is really clear on this, that um, it's okay to feel kind of periodic, you know, um, feelings of, of, you know, disappointment, frustration, anger, sadness. But it's when you start to feel ashamed of those feelings and start to try to kind of push them down because you feel that they're not reflecting well on you. That's when, like, you're increasing the um, risk of, like, serious mental illness, like depression, anxiety, um, and, you know, even, like, physical health uh, problems as well. So we actually, we do need to be more accepting of our, our negative feelings and to, to recognise that sometimes they're there for a reason. You know, anxiety is there because it can help us to to be energised sometimes and to respond to the problem. Sadness, you know, 
in the short term can help to teach us an important lesson and can actually help to us to change the path of our life for the better. And just recognising that there's this kind of meaning in what you're feeling, that seems to be more protective than just trying to suppress the bad feelings and only <laughs> kind of look for the good feelings. Shove it down, shove it down. Right, That's exactly. <laughs> That's the worst thing we can do, but it's what we've been taught to do, I think. Anesthetize yeah. yourself and deny that it exists. Yeah, no, that has been... I think that, you know, has been the kind of message of a lot of the positive thinking literature, actually, is, you know, there were books, huge bestsellers from the 70s, you know, one called like Your Erroneous Zones, and it kind of li- listed all of these That's negative feelings. a good book feelings. title, actually. I like that book title. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I feel like it's been wasted um, because, you know, the book is kind of promoting this idea that you just have to kind of stamp down on the bad feelings and be positive. But, you know, um, that's not what the expectation effect is about at all. It's not about kind of being dishonest about how you're feeling, but it's more about kind of looking for maybe the meaning behind those feelings and recognising that they, they don't have to have the negative consequences that you think, that you can be sad, but actually sometimes that will help to put you on a better path in life later on. If I recognise my thinking is being not positive, maybe even destructive. How do I, are there techniques I can use to turn that around? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, lots of good techniques. And I, I think like, um, you know, simply actually kind of cultivating that awareness, I think is the first step. Um, because actually with all of the expectation effects, I think with aging, you know, with stress, you know, with even when you're feeling ill, like we have this tendency to kind of catastrophize and to go down this kind of spiral of negative thinking. So, you know, it starts out with the kind of immediate concern, but then you start to kind of exaggerate the potential consequences of that. So, you know, with stress, it was the idea that it's not just that I'm feeling uncomfortable with my stress, it's then that I'm going to fail. And then it's like, well, if I fail, I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to be humiliated or, you Mm. know, it's like going down that line of thinking. And so just learning to kind of spot when you're doing that and to just ask yourself, like, is that really objectively, you know, true and likely? Like, it might be a possibility, but is it the most likely outcome? Um, Or is there another positive way of looking at it? Could you see, you know, in this case, could you see that anxiety as being energizing? Um, If you're feeling pain, you know, if you've got a bad migraine, you might immediately think, um, you know, like, um, I can't be feeling this pain um, without there being something seriously wrong with my brain. And then you start to kind of imagine having a brain tumour. And what the research shows, you know, that catastrophic thinking is then going to lead you to... um, the, it actually amplifies the pain, you know, it causes mm. you to release these chemicals that amplify right. pain uh, signals. Um, you know, in that case, you can just start to think, well, like, have I been through a migraine in the past and got over it r- quite quickly? You know, the pain didn't last forever. I've managed to cope with it. Can I do that again? So, you know, that is just a really important first step, I think, is to to notice when you're going down that path and to try to kind of stop and think and question Um, Now, sometimes it's hard to do that. So there's this other technique called self-distancing that can help you to kind of step outside the situation and to to look at it a little bit more objectively. And essentially, this is just imagining that you're kind of advising a friend um, who's experiencing exactly the same thing that you are. And, you know, the chances are that you would probably, without you know, lying to them, you try to just emphasize the positive or to kind of view it in a different, from a different perspective. Um, You know, that goes for, you know, if your friend had a migraine, I think you would try to discourage them from 
thinking that it was, um, you know, a sign of terminal illness. Um, if your friend was feeling stressed about a talk, you know, I think you'd actually try to kind of tell them, you know, like, you can do it, you've done this before, you can get over that. If your friend was like really like stressing about aging and, and you know, had reached like 60 or 70 and was like, oh, my life's over, like it's only declined from now on. I hope that you would actually start to say to them like, no, you've got lots in front of you. You know, there's lots to embrace and you try to point out those positive attitudes. And the research just shows that actually self-distancing works exactly like this. It really does help you to gain that kind of outside perspective that just helps it helps make it a lot easier to reframe the situation. So you're still being honest, but you're just you're avoiding that negative catastrophization that can then lead to the negative expectation effect. Is that why routine is helpful in uh, creating distance between ourselves and the situation? Hmm, yeah. In what sense? Do you mean like rituals that we can develop? Or... Well, rituals, yeah, 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 yeah. Like a, like a batter get, before he steps to the plate, you know, does he taps his cleats twice or whatever, and then he steps up. Golfers do it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so many... Yeah, so many people do. You know, um, Serena Williams listens to the same song before each match or, you know, she did before she retired. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's another way of like actually just helping to helping to feel that you're in control of the situation. It's like acknowledging there's lots of uncertainty out there, but this is what I can do to get myself into the best possible mindset to succeed. Um and, you know, and it it works. Like the research shows that actually having these rituals, you know, there's nothing magic about them, but psychologically, they're very effective at just putting you in this state of mind where you feel reassured that you've done the preparation that you need to. You feel that you have the resources that you will need to get through the challenge. And as a result of that, you do find it easier to get through the challenge. So if I've got a big putt on the golf course, David, and it's, yeah. you know, a, a big putt, like three feet, and it's for some m huge prize, like 12 or $13. What should I do in that moment to make sure I, I don't let my head get in my way? Mm, I mean, you know, I think all of these routines are useful if you've practiced them, you know, many times before, uh, so that they start to feel like they have this kind of personal meaning to you. But it could be anything, like it could be just having a lucky club that you always use and like really mm -hmm. thinking about that. You know, maybe it was associated with someone you admired or, you know, someone who taught you how to how to play. Um, you know, it could be just be before the game, like doing a set of routine stretches that are kind of helping you to warm up and that, you know, leaves you feeling empowered. Um, it could just be remembering like, um, you know, a fragment of your favourite song, like something that just like you know, leaves you feeling like you, you've got it, you've got the situation under yeah. control. You know, all of these things can be useful. And I think what's great is that we can create our own personal routines and rituals. You know, we don't need them to be like um, age-old superstitions that actually we can just, you know, find find stuff that makes us feel good, feel confident. And the more you practice that, kind of the more useful it's going to be. It's like, again, it's like I was talking about those pills, you know, all of the symbolism that we mm. can kind of imbue in a placebo pill. Well, it's the same with these rituals. We can come to to have that as a kind of shorthand for the positive mindset that we need to get into when we're really under pressure. I was playing a, a match with a partner and uh, two, we were playing against two other guys. And my partner, as I was, I was lining up this putt and he could tell I was totally in my head. He goes, hit it firmly and I love you. And, and so in that moment, he just took me right out of the, out of my head and just made me laugh. And I made the putt. And I was like, that's brilliant. That was brilliant. Yeah.
Yeah, that's it. I mean, I think other people can be really important for helping us to get into these um, positive mindsets too. Um, there's, you know, research showing that actually expectation effects can be contagious. So if you have someone in a sports team, for example, or, you know, in your team at work who has um, this kind of positive attitude to stress and they, you know, they feel it for themselves that actually, you know, when they're kind of feeling anxious, they see that as a sign of like energy kind of rising. Um, that actually, you know, they communicate that to the people around them, whether, you know, through nonverbal cues or just by kind of pumping those people up. And actually, you know, it spreads. And so the whole team does better, even if just one person has been educated about that particular expectation effect. Um, so I think that's, you know, really useful for us. Like, it's not just that we can bring out the best in ourselves by applying this science, but actually it can help us to bring out the best in other people too. Is that the main takeaway from the book? Is that is, is if you had a, a one minute takeaway, what would you want people to, uh, to take away from your writing and your research? Yeah, it would be that one, you know, that our expectations can, you know, influence ourselves and other people. So mm. we do have this kind of responsibility to try to, you know, um, to just try to apply this research once we've learned about it. But I think more importantly, really, you know, it, it is just that um, it's counteracting that narrative that we've had for so long that um, it's kind of more rational to be pessimistic, you know, to always imagine the worst case scenario. We kind of see that as being like um, a sign of being smart. Um, you know, actually, like being too pessimistic is just as irrational as being too optimistic. Um, and I'm certainly not telling people that they should go out and be, you know, Pollyanna, kind of just imagining like, that the world's, you know, rose-tinted and beautiful and, you know, it's all like um, sunflowers and rainbows. But I am just saying that actually we can question those negative expectations. We can stop ourselves going down that um, kind of uh, catastrophic, kind of ruminative um, negative spiral. And we can bring ourselves up to this point where we're just, you know, open-minded about what might happen and, and the the situation that we're in, where we can try to be balanced and see that there might be positive outcomes and negative outcomes. And that actually just getting to that point and kind of acknowledging that it might not be black and white, but that, you know, there might be something positive to kind of cling on to. I think that in itself can be really powerful. And that's really behind all of the expectation effects. It is a an incredibly worthwhile idea for all of us to keep in mind as we navigate our, our, our houses, our jobs, and our worlds. And I appreciate your writing and research on the topic. My guest is David Robson. He's the author of The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. David, where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter for as long as it exists. <laughs> so um, it, uh, my uh, name is uh, D underscore A underscore Robson. Um, you know, I, I do kind of share like my recent writing on there. Um, I'm also on Instagram, David a Robson. Um, and my website, you know, I have a contact page where you can send me uh, your kind of thoughts about what I've spoken about, what you've read. And that is uh, davidrobson.me. We will put links to those in the show notes. David, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. It's been a great conversation. Hey, everybody. If you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.